Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm tired of having audio trouble. <laughs> it's true. If this recording sounds weird, Stephen's microphone and audacity and all sorts of things have been grumpy. Yeah, so we would do a more comprehensive examination of my poor <laughs> technologies. But Stephen's about to get, get comprehensively examined for his PhD. In, indeed. Indeed. So apologies in advance. But other than that, we are ready to talk about telephones. And Wait, may... what? We just did that. <laughs> we just did that. That's right. So last time, not last episode, but the one before, last time that we were talking about phones, we were talking about phones just great, and then I got on a rabbit trail where I wanted to talk about robots. So I said, uh, okay, we'll talk about robots now. <laughs> I really have no excuse for why this happened. I just, I was really intrigued by talking about robots. So It's okay. We got to talk about robots. So we'll talk more about robots in their own episode, and we're going to actually do the other half of the episode that we had planned uh, this time, which is good because we'll be able to expand it a little more into its own half hour, which we think is pretty valuable. So the way we're going to come at this is basically to look at the other half of the equation from a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we sort of outlined the big picture of buying phones and how the technologies have shifted and how the economics have shifted with changes in the market, basically. But now to pick up the religion remit of our show a little bit, we want to look and ask, okay, so all those things are true and all those things are going to affect everyone in various ways. But how do we, specifically as Christians, think about some of these things? How do we think about the question of what is enough? How do we think about the question of involving our communities in our decisions about technologies? And how do our communities shape us, whether we want to or invite them to or not? And then going a step further, how should we as Christians think about the tools we use? Do we have a view on technology as Christians? Or are we just sort of instrumentalists who run with it and go with the flow? So we'll try to get to each of those throughout the course of the episode, but I can't promise Stephen won't pivot again. That's right. And I can't guarantee that we won't uh, keep going long on one point. <laughs> I often listen back to the episodes and say, oh, man, we said we were going to get to that point. <laughs> and well, then we didn't. Yeah, I guess that's a different episode now. But the first thing that we want to discuss is an ethical point that isn't exactly tied to religion, but leads into it pretty strongly. And it's one that I've been thinking about a lot and that we touched on briefly with the first episode, which is how much is enough? And I talked about this by saying I don't really want anything else other than my S4. It does what I want it to do. I don't really want to pay any more money. And I think that the changes that are happening to phones now are so granular, the iPhone 6S Hoopla 3D notwithstanding. The phone changes are so granular that there's not a whole lot of reason for me to change. And this goes to an idea that I've been thinking about in terms of all technologies, which is the seemingly endless and permanent rush towards 
more technology and technological utopia, basically. We will always have more and better technologies. And I don't really know if that's A, viable, or B, desirable, because I think there are definite points where you want to step back and say, okay, just because we can doesn't mean we should. I think there are probably some other things we could be addressing. And this becomes increasingly a question we have to ask as the return on investment goes down. And that's part of why this has been highlighted by the phone conversation is, uh, as Stephen pointed out, hoopla over a new iPhone release notwithstanding, the return on investment, the $600 you're going to spend out of pocket to get a new phone this year, what does that give you that you didn't have from the phone you bought for $600 last year or the year before? And the answer might be a little faster and the answer might be some new touch gesture things if you're getting a new iPhone. And sure, some of those things are cool. And I actually think some of the research involved in some of those things is valuable as we figure out how to make technology better and make the experience of using these things better. Something I'm also on board with. But that being said, there's still a sense in which we can say, I have enough right now. My computer that I bought three years ago does everything I need it to. My wife's computer that we bought her five years ago still does everything she needs it to. And we've we've bumped a spec here or there in it to help it continue to perform well as time has gone on. But the reality is my wife writes and checks her email and does things on the internet and shares pictures and... Does a little bit of Python. She does do a bit of Python. You should totally check out our Python podcast. But for the most part, She's perfectly content with it, and it does everything she needs. And yes, a lighter machine with better battery life would be nice for her, but it's not a need. And something we too rarely ask in our materialist consumerist society is, do I have enough? Is what I have good enough? Or do I truly need something new? Now, there are times when we need new tools, when our old tools break, or when they're no longer sufficient for a task. And great. Go buy one. Yeah, go buy one. Invest in a good tool that does the job the way you need it to. But a lot of times we get seduced by, as the internet would put it, new shiny. Here's a, here's a new iPhone, and I have to get it because it's new, and it's an iPhone, and it's shiny, and it does cool things that my iPhone doesn't. Well, yeah, but maybe you don't actually need it. Maybe you want it, and maybe even that desire for it isn't always bad. Right. But sometimes it might be, and we should take a step back and say, maybe I could use that money somewhere else. Maybe I could feed some people who need food. Maybe I could invest it in generous causes. Maybe I could go say, hey, this person over here could use a chance to learn how to play violin, so I'm going to buy a violin for them instead of spending $600, or whatever the case may be. Over time, those kinds of decisions of saying, I have enough, let me use what excess I have for the good of others, can add up and make a pretty big difference in your community. Right. And I think that the balance that we have to put against this is there's always an individual and there's always a collective. And if you think about the collective in terms of the economy, we do live in a materialist, consumer-driven economy. People buying things is what makes businesses money, which is what makes stockholders money, which is what makes the market go up, which is what makes all of the economic indicators go up, which makes people happy. These are all things that are part of the economy. And so in some regards, saying, hey, we have enough is tantamount to saying, hey, we should stop the economy. Like That's... <laughs> That's literally part and parcel with how this works is that 
there is something to be said for a runaway economy on the back of materialism and the ways that runaway economies often don't go super well in the long run. Understatement there. Yeah. <laughs> I approve. <laughs> so there's there's a lot that can be looked at historically to say, okay, we maybe need to rein in our economy to a more balanced position between stability and growth, which I think I might be the only person in America <laughs> saying that right now. But that's part of what this entails is if we think about I personally have enough and I don't want to buy any more, then what moves the economy? Valid question. Maybe it's experiences. Maybe we're moving to that mythical experience economy that was forecast in the mid-2000s where everybody already has enough. Maybe we're starting to transition ever so slowly and in an unevenly distributed way towards the post-need society, the post-scarcity society. I don't think we are, but that's something that can be considered as we start to look at the ways that technology is integrated into our lives and the ways that we are moving past a strict point where buying something that is two years removed is a drastic change from buying something that's two years in the future. And unsurprisingly here, we're starting to touch on some pretty serious macroeconomic questions that uh, we're not going to resolve in this 30-minute podcast, of course. But What? We're not going to solve economics today? I know. Shocking. But these are big questions that we need to start thinking about and asking because economic shifts can be large and painful. And if, as it appears, there are substantive and large economic shifts on the horizon, then how we go about navigating those will be enormously important to the lives of everybody. And whether that's to a quote-unquote post-scarcity society or what constitutes scarcity shifts and where things run around shift, there are nonetheless a lot of transitions to be navigated in the years ahead. And we do think that we need to start having these conversations and start thinking about how you handle having enough and what it would look like to build an economy that's not predicated on the notion of always needing more, that's not mm -hmm. built on the notion of insufficient means for everyone, and that isn't a zero-sum game. Now, right. capitalism is not a zero-sum economy. In fact, the entire basis of capitalism is that the economy is not zero-sum. Yet, because it's had scarcity in it, people tend to act like it is at times. And changes in that could be very disruptive to our existing system. And we need to be thoughtful about that and start asking. Of course, the related question is, okay, so we're Christians and we're participants in the world around us. But we don't necessarily feel obliged to endorse all the systems around us. Right. We don't necessarily feel obliged to endorse or actively participate in the economic systems around us. Well. Or or to embrace or, well, yeah. We have to participate to some extent if yeah, you want Yeah, you can't, yeah. You, <laughs> Unless you, you go live on a commune. And, <laughs> and just prima facie, this is a society that we live in. So, right. you know, you can't opt out of the economy just because you want to. Much to the chagrin of many an extremist, like you just, you can't. <laughs> Like it's, it's still going to be a part of how you have to operate. But the way that I think Christianity helps us think about this is that it is based specifically on a non-scarcity model. It is based specifically on this idea that your main needs are spiritual and they are easily and totally satisfiable in a very real sense. And that is a deep 
correction to this idea of the economy, but also to this idea of technology writ large. One of the things that's that's tricky there is, of course, the way that's been applied has often turned into a sort of dualism that rejects physical needs. And we're not saying that because physical needs are really important. And Christianity has affirmed from the get go that the human body is important and that embodied existence is important. And therefore that embodied physical institutions like jobs are important. You know, we've said this many times in the past, so we're right. we're not saying that. And the poor are important to take care of. Yes, and you're interested in social justice, right? Because Jesus was interested in social justice. But from a first things sort of perspective, the the spiritual is what gets you to heaven, and <laughs> right? Right. Not the material, <laughs> right? And and yet, there's also a strong push to deal with the material in a way that reflects that. Because Christianity is not a religion that says, okay, spiritual things, so now we stop caring about those things. Rather, we follow the example of our Lord, who said spiritual things and therefore all of these very real day-to-day consequences. And so for us, we're left asking the question, okay, I've made these spiritual choices. I've called Christ Lord. I have proclaimed my belief in his resurrection and in a future resurrection for myself and so on. And these are big spiritual concepts that, you know, you can read about or we could talk about. You can email us or something if you want to talk about further. Today, we're going to say, okay, so now when I'm living that life, a life shaped by that with my community group at my church, how do I think about buying a new iPhone? (laughs) (laughs) What do you do do about that? Because... you, you are part of a material economy, and you are part of a material existence, even if you are part of a church, and even if you're part of a spiritual life of a community, as well as an individual, your own individual spiritual life. Too often, Christians can separate the two, like Chris was saying, and say, okay, spiritual's all over here, because that's the main thing. Everything else, do what you want, and we'll all sort it out up top. And, <laughs> and we don't think that's how it works. We think that you have to draw your actual actions out in the world, and that includes technology and technology choices from the ways that your internal ethical structure, which for Chris and I is religion, uh, Christianity, and for our non-Christian listeners is some other ethical or religious structure. We think that you have to tie those together. You have to, to draw your actions out of what those ethical structures are. And And going a step further, all of us inherently do that there's a sense in which the things we do proclaim what our allegiances really are in that way, and that we don't always necessarily line up our deep-seated beliefs and our deep-seated views of the world with what we say we think and believe about the world. Plenty of us say we are Christians who believe in self-sacrifice and then don't actually do very well at self-sacrifice, for example. And so what, what we show when we do that is that in a lot of ways, our deepest-seated approaches to things aren't what we say they are and maybe aren't what we want them to be. And so right. we're constantly wrestling with that tension. Yeah, we call that sanctification. <laughs> yeah. But uh, in the context of a small group, you know, so in the context of, and, and that's our community life, you're going to have a different experience if you're not in a church, if you're not a Christian. But you do have a community, and that community has to inform your decisions in some way unless you embrace a sort of radical individualism. And to be fair, many Americans long have, but we don't think, we've said before, we don't think that's good or healthy. So, Stephen, yeah. are you going to ask your community group what phone you should buy next? No, I think they would laugh at me. 
Should they laugh at you is another question, of course. Yeah, no. But... The, uh, it's, it's a difficult question because we don't usually think about the ways that our overlapping social structures interact. So a lot of people that own phones do so as part of their work, whether they're a freelancer or whether they have a assigned phone from their place of business or some other configuration, some of their technology choices are dictated outside of their social group of their spiritual community. And so there is less of an ability to make a choice of your technology use based on your internal ethical ideas about what should be done. They, get, they hand you a new phone when <laughs> it's time for a new phone. And that's a really interesting difficulty that sometimes gets discussed as the, the ways that our spheres of influence overlap and the ways that our allegiances overlap. But yeah, the, the ways that we have to think about, okay, how does my family interact with my church life? How does my work interact with my church life? How does my group of tech friends interact with my church life. Those interlocking circles of social groups and social structures all have an effect on how we actually form our opinions about technology, in my opinion, because I'm a social constructivist that says technologies are largely decided by groups saying this is what that technology means, which means when you have a phone, it means different things to different people. In church, it's largely considered to be a distraction when it goes off in the middle of a service. <laughs> but that's not what it means if it goes off in the middle of your work. It means it might be somebody who's calling you about new business, and so then it could be celebrated. So there's a whole lot of different meanings that are assigned to various technologies that might even just be the same piece that you're holding in your hand. Right. But of course, it's also worth note that that situation you just outlined is one that is, uh, if not constructed, then at least substantially mediated by technology. Because, well, we live in an era where those circles don't overlap nearly as much as they once did, because we all drive automobiles or ride commuter train or whatever else to get to our work and likewise to get to our church and then get online and have conversations via Skype with someone sitting in a chair 40 miles away to record a podcast and then chat about it with people who live on the other side of the world via Twitter or app.net or Facebook. And But I think that that doesn't mean that we have less social groups. I think it means that we have different types of social groups. No, 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 quite the opposite. Groups. Yeah. Well, and what I'm getting at is simply that we have not only those different types, but that because of enabling technologies like the ones I just listed, those groups now often don't overlap. And so our responsibilities are further complicated by that, which leads us to this next question, which is, so how should we think about that? Is that good? Well, I think they overlap more than we think they do. Because even if they don't physically overlap, if you don't work in the same place that your church is, if it's not in the same community, the ways that we think about our communities still exist in our mind together. Even if we don't think of like Todd from church and Mike from work and Jill from my bowling league all in the same place at once, the ways that we interact with people, all of those together create how we think about technology. Because like when I talk to you about technology, I'm going to get a ribbing about Apple, basically. Like that's what's going to happen. If I talk to my friend who has a Windows phone, like we're going to have a very different conversation, but it's going to shape the way I think about my phone as well as Windows phone. And so 
even though those individual social circles don't overlap, they do overlap in my mind and they overlap in your mind. Right. They intersect on you. Yeah. So I think that the interaction that those individual social groups have with each other without me as the only mediator is different. But I think that if we're looking at how individuals make technology choices, I think that all of those social groups still have play and still interact in our mind. Now, if we're thinking about how communities make groups and how communities make changes to their group identity or their ideas about technology, that's something that I think is very, very different. And I, I think that's part of what I'm I'm driving at is 150 years ago, those groups all overlapped geographically and therefore socially much more and therefore tended to have to address these issues in very much more all overlapping or mostly overlapping ways. Whereas it's been possible to be the sort of fractured and highly individualized selves that we are only in late modernity, or at least primarily and much more strongly in late modernity. And and that's a case of technology creating or enabling patterns of approaching technology and responding to it technology that didn't exist before. And so I'm agreeing with you in the sense that all of those things still intersect in us as individuals. I'm just noting that we have technologically created and enabled a situation where people are making those things in groups that don't necessarily overlap. And I just find that interesting. Mm. You know, the conversations I have with my app.net friends about technology are very different from those I would have at church. Right. And that that point, which you just made, is, I don't even know the right word. It It just requires that we be more conscious of those things if we're going to make those decisions in light of one community over another, for example. If right. we're going to effectively proclaim, no, I want to make this decision more in light of my church community because I think that community is walking more rightly in line with how I think reality works, then we're going to have to come at that in a different way than we necessarily would if our church community included all of the people we did work with on a weekly basis too. For good or ill, we have to approach it differently. Right. So the thing that we have to address if we take your example that you just posited and move it forward is what does Christianity think about technology? Chris and I have talked about this before off of the podcast because it's a giant topic that we haven't <laughs> felt felt very equipped to to broach until now. <laughs> Three minutes before the end of the podcast. <laughs> right, right. We're basically just going to have a chance to introduce this topic, and we'll come back to it later. But we're interested in how the the sweep of the biblical narrative moves from a garden to a city with a garden in it. And that's a giant exposition of Scripture in one tiny little sentence. But the main thing is that there's an urban recognition. At the beginning of the Bible, cities weren't largely a thing. By the end of the Bible, they were— the revelation of John says, yeah, that'll be around when we get to heaven. So Christianity does not have an anti-technological bent inherently if you see the city as a metaphor for technology, which many people have done, uh, both secular and uh, Christian. And so that's important to us because there are a lot of people that have argued that technology is inherently if not evil, it has a trajectory that is bad. And this would be people like Jacques Ellul and um, 
other thinkers who are concerned that technology makes you do certain things, live in certain ways, and espouses certain virtues that are impressed upon those that use it. And Chris and I don't think that's true. And we have slightly different views of how technology does or doesn't do that. But we are definitely not substantivists saying that this is the way that technology moves you or what technology wants. Right. We, we tend more to think that technology has consequences. And as, as Stephen commented about robots a few weeks ago, that specific technologies may be problematic they they may be bad but that doesn't mean that technology is and there there's an important distinction there because we can then be able to tease out and say what do we think about technology a versus technology b how should we think christianly about technology c versus technology d and that kind of distinction is really important and really helpful because we can then start to have grounds for saying well look fusion engines would be great fusion bombs are maybe less great and they're related to each other i certainly less great let's let's just go for certainly less great Uh, i'm all in on that (laughs) the the point is that then we can say no look some technologies are good some technologies are bad some technologies may be necessary evils at this point some technologies may be morally neutral but not consequence less and in opening that discussion, then we have the opportunity to attack the, the problem from the helpful angle. We, we want to acknowledge, again, technologies have consequences, and you can't escape mm-hmm. those consequences. Mm-hmm. But technologies don't have wills. Technologies are the expression of human will. And that allows us then to express our will by embracing technologies that do rightly express what we think a Christian view is or not. And so... Over the last season, we've been talking a lot about how the companies that make and employ technology treat their people, treat their relations with the rest of society. And I feel like we're going to be shifting over the next few weeks and talking more about how technology relates as we do this, because you've already heard us say what we have to say about workplace ethics. And so... You know, we'll get around to talking about that. Something new comes up, but we're not going to be one of those podcasts that says, guess what, guys? The same thing. (laughs) We're going to try to not do that to you. And so this is something that Chris and I have talked about a long time and that we're really interested in and that we want to kind of explore. How do we decide what is a morally neutral technology that's being employed in a bad way and what is just a bad technology? How do we decide what is a good technology? How do we decide what is a bad technology that can be used in a good way if it has some more rules. These are all questions that, based on the way that we think about technology, we think are possible. And there are other people who think that the questions we just said are nonsense. But our particular view is that those are all valid questions to explore, and we're going to do that. Before you go, it's been very much in the news lately that there's been a massive refugee influx hitting Europe especially but much of the rest of the world as well. Uh, And reactions to this have been very mixed. Reactions have included a great deal of compassion, but they've also included a great deal of hostility and a great deal of anti-migrant sentiment, anti-refugee sentiment. We would encourage all of you, especially our Christian listeners, to pray for 
the refugees who are in dire straits, and for the people and leaders in the countries most affected by this to be characterized above all by compassion and wisdom. Wisdom because dealing with hundreds of thousands of penniless refugees is no joke, but compassion because that's what we need here. These are people in desperate need fleeing horrible situations. And as we gear up for our fourth season where we'll be talking more about globalization, we have to keep in mind that there are a lot of countries in the EU that are not the first beach responders, but that are having some pretty difficult issues with how to think about migrants and how to think about refugees and how to think about their own governments in light of being compassionate versus being uh, populist in some way or shape or form. So not just Greece and Hungary, but also the entire EU needs your thoughts and prayers. The song at the beginning of the episode was Song of the Sun by Fell Runner. We used it by permission, so please ask them if you want to use it. Thanks again to Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. You can find a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you would like to sponsor the show, we think you would be great. And you should go to patreon.com slash winning slowly if you want to give monthly. Or you can just give directly at, wait for it, cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly never gets old never old and remember we're committed to giving 10 percent of whatever support the show receives to the internet archive to help preserve the history of the internet you can subscribe to the show in itunes or your favorite podcast app and if you like the show would you do us a favor and rate and review us on itunes it helps you can also follow us on Twitter or app.net at Winning Slowly, or you can subscribe to our Facebook page. And on those channels, we post not only the episodes, but content related to previous episodes. Last but not least, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can hit us on any of those social media or email us at hello at winningslowly.org. As always, thanks for listening. Man, there's going to be a section in there where I have to take out, like, a second of pause between every word you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, like, each of us have giant bloopers. Yeah. I, I give you full – I give you full and total authority to just, like, chop out irrelevant sections because we <laughs> – we rambled there. Yep. We, we we picked it up by the end, but man, that middle. Woof. So yeah. So use I will your, chop uh, and ed- edit. Editorial discretion. <laughs> oh, I will. Oh my gosh. This is gonna be a forty minute episode that runs out to twenty four minutes. <laughs> yeah. We wrapped just under thirty five and I expect it'll probably be twenty nine or so when I'm done. Twenty nine yeah. to thirty one. So Yeah. Yeah. Anyway.